I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. I'm Christopher Eubanks, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Hello, and welcome to Season 9 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and this week we are chatting with Alon Kakshuri, who is based in Israel and has an amazing um, resume in terms of his tennis involvement and otherwise. But just to give you a little bit of background, Alon had reached out to me via email well before the holidays started, the end of 2019, and we were trying and trying and trying to arrange a time to record, and with him in Israel and me in the States, it was a bit challenging, but we figured out how to make that work, but... Alon is just a, an amazing font of information about the sport, about the business of the sport, and most recently about training junior players and how the mental side of the game is such an important component and why coaches and parents need to pay attention to that. So just to give you a little bit of background on Alon, he is a sports entrepreneur. He's the former manager of Novak Djokovic and a member of the ATP Council. So he has an inside look at the sport from the business side, as I mentioned, and also from the coaching side. And He is now kind of shifting his focus to help young players improve their mental toughness. And so that's what we're focusing on in our conversation today. But, you know, we're going to touch on things like what distinguishes players like Rafa and Novak from everybody else? And what are the mental toughness lessons that Alon has learned from managing world-class players? And how does he kind of translate that in his work with junior players. It's just, it's a great conversation and one that I would highly recommend you share actually with your junior player. And if you are the parent, maybe even with your player's coach, because there's just some incredible information here. So I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Alon Kakshuri. I think you will learn a lot and I certainly did. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Alon Kakshuri, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so excited to be here. Well, you and I have been going back and forth with emails and we've chatted online and and all kinds of stuff and scheduling when you're in Israel and I am in California is <laughs> tricky, but we made it work finally. Yes, no, I'm grateful and I'm sorry I was traveling quite a bit and that made it even more complicated. Ah, uh, well, you know, the important thing is we're here now and we get to talk tennis. So I'm excited. I me too. That's that's really my passion and that's what I like talking about most. Well, awesome. So before we jump in too much, I would love for you to give our listeners a little bit of your background in tennis. Sure. So uh, I've been fortunate enough to manage three world number one tennis players, including Novak Djokovic, Marat Safin, Dinara Safina, many more top players. I saw some extremely talented guys never really make it to the top. I saw some um, less talented players or people that 
um, players that people didn't expect to do so well do extremely well. And that really made me very interested about what it takes to be a top tennis player. And on, um, on a second track, I was fortunate enough to get involved in the running, organizing, and also owning of professional tennis events. I was a tournament director of WTA events, ATP events, and I'm currently also on the ATP Council. And what does that mean that you're on the ATP Council? What is your role and, and you know, what do you get to do as part of the council? Because we always hear about sure. the players that were on the council, but I didn't realize there were non-players on the council too. No, so the ATP has a board which consists of three player reps and three tournament reps and a president. And then the tournament reps report back to the player council, which consists of another 12 elected players and the tournament reps, they report back and consult with the tournament council, which are also elected members. And um, I'm one of those tournament council members. And so what do you do as part of the council? So we go through like the agenda of the board, like the topics that are being discussed and that the board will need to decide on. And we discuss those topics and then we give board members feedback after consulting with all the constituencies, all the tournament and player reps, so that we really give the board members exactly the direction of what the members of the tour really want. And so the, the kind of charge of the player council is to make sure that tournaments and the scheduling and everything is run in accordance with what will, I guess, put the players in the best position to perform at the highest level for the entirety of the season. Is that correct? More or less. So the ATP is a partnership and the player reps and then the council guys uh, with regards to the player reps, they really try and make sure that the player interests are being considered and the tournament reps try and make sure that the tournament considerations are being um, considered. And this can be a contradiction, of course, because sometimes, for example, the player reps request higher prize money from tournaments and the tournaments argue that they're already paying too much. And this is when things can become very tense and this is when it can become a very difficult situation for a president to manage. And that's often one of the reasons why presidents last or leave the tour. I'm not saying that happened this time, but it's definitely one of the dynamics. And the player council is extremely powerful because they tend to, um, how do you say, discharge a board rep who doesn't follow their exact instructions. Interesting. Very interesting. Politics as usual, I guess. It doesn't yeah, matter if it's... In the, in the last... Uh, year or two, a few player board reps had to step down based on the instructions of the player council. And with regards to the tournament councils, that doesn't really happen. Like, um, usually the board members, they abide to the instructions of the council, but they don't always have to. And more often than not, that doesn't really um, generate any consequences. So I would say on the tournament side, the council is more of like a consultancy institution. And on the player side, it's more of a jurisdiction. Like the, the player reps 
are really accountable to the player council. Interesting, interesting. And just to give you the final scope, so basically we meet, I think it's four, four times a year, at least four times a year. So the last council meetings, they were in London during the ATP um, finals. And the next council meetings are going to be at the 500 event in Acapulco in February in Mexico. Nice. That's not a, it's not a terrible place to have to go meet. No, no. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so now you are focusing more on the mental side of tennis and have started working with some younger players. And maybe you can share with our listeners, you know, what that's looking like, what you're doing. Sure. So up until recently, like uh, representing players and running tournaments was a key component of my life. But um, I got married five years ago. I have two kids now. And I realized that I can't travel as much as I used to. So I started to think, you know, like, how can I really share my experiences and add as much value to people who love tennis without traveling as much? And I realized that the one area that I really feel passionate about, the one area that I speak to players about, the one area that I researched for like 15, 20, 30 years is the mental side of the game. And I still represent a few players. I travel less, but I realize that we talk more and more about that aspect of the game because as an agent, we want our players to do well because that's when we can really do great work for them and create amazing you know commercial results and what really separates the best players from everyone else is the mental side of the game well and we talk a lot about the small margins especially in professional tennis i mean every single player out there hits the ball cleanly can hit targets on a consistent basis has great footwork has great fitness but oftentimes the differentiating factor is the mentality of the player. And, you know, I would love for you to explain to the listeners what distinguishes the top players like Federer, like Nadal, like Djokovic from the rest of the pack. And, you know, why are these three guys continuing to be so dominant out there? I think this is a broad question. So I'll give you one version. Today I had coffee with a Craig O'Shaughnessy. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I love Craig. He's done our podcast several times. He's a great guy. So so we were chatting about tennis and how data is becoming so much more important and like how you can really see things that are not so obvious by analyzing data. And that made me really think the one thing that really separates the very best from everyone else is this constant desire to improve and this constant desire to look for new ways to enhance their game. And what you can see with the top guys is on the one hand, they feel super confident that they can play unbelievable tennis. But on the other hand, they're extremely humble and willing to learn from different people who bring new dimensions to their thinking and to their game. And I think that is one of the big things. If you look at guys like Federer or Nadal or Novak, you can witness what I call escalating professionalism. I remember 
Roger as a younger player, he used to throw rackets and tantrums and he really scaled up how he presents himself on the tennis court. And I also remember Novak, who I managed from the age of 14. And many people won't remember that. He had a lot of health issues. He mm-hmm. str- struggled physically, often in long five-set matches. He was known for taking long medical timeouts. And he kept improving his game. He surprised everyone. He became the number three in the world. I think many people didn't expect that. But it looked like Federer and Nadal were untouchable for him. And I remember in 2010, when Nadal beat him in a very tough match at the US Open final. And you just had the feeling that Nadal was just always a little bit better than Novak. And you could see Novak's frustration after the match. And I think that was one of the turning points where he realized that unless he does drastic changes, he'll always be the third best. And that's when he started to enhance his fitness regime. He started to change his diet. He started to get into the mental aspect of the game more. And he really enhanced his professionalism. And I think right now he's probably the physically strongest tennis player on the tour. And it just shows what a transformation he made. So if I had to sum up what separates the best tennis players, probably the best of any area in life. It's this consistent desire to improve and this consistent ability to reinvent themselves, to just become a better version of themselves. Well, so let me ask you, as the guy managing Novak during that period where Rafa and Roger were consistently beating him and he was having those health issues, how did the conversations go in the locker room after those losses? Because, you know, from, from a parent side, I mean, as a manager, you're kind of stepping into the role that the parents are in during a a player's junior years, right? You know, we're the ones (laughs) talking to them after these matches or not talking to them after the matches and, you know, letting them stew for a while before addressing anything that, that needs to be addressed. So what did those conversations look like between you and Novak? So, I mean, first of all, you know, like um, they were with me and the team, Marianne Vida, who was a coach who I actually found for him and all the other members. And I think in the younger years, it was just like, you know, you're getting there, you're becoming better, you're closing the gap. When like time passed, it was more like a little bit like bad luck. And then like over time, everyone started to, you know, like feel a little bit anxious, you know, like just like these guys, they just, they're playing unbelievable and you just need to keep working, keep doing what you do. And I think the way that Novak transformed himself, I think it actually really happened more intrinsic than extrinsic, you know, Mm -hmm. from a management point of view, I have to tell you that you know, if someone is three in the world, it's still very good. You know, like I'm not going to say, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that's a disgrace. How dare you lose to Rafa and Roger? <laughs> yes, and everybody's doing okay financially, tennis. right? Everybody's exactly. fine financially. Yes. I'm not going to tell him, look, these guys are better than you. Right. But in my head, I might think, you know, right now these guys are playing better tennis and uh, it's still a good effort. But I think in his head, it was just not enough. You know, like that loss was it was just becoming painful, you know, like really doing all the work, reaching the finals of big events and then 
losing to these guys. He did win the Australian Open once before, but Novak just, he didn't want to settle for being the third best guy. And, and so when that um, transformation started, was it something that Novak initiated or do you think it was a result of maybe, you know, conversations he was having with you and with Marion and with his parents? What kind of lit the final fire under him to say, you know, enough is enough. I know I can do better than this and I need to make a change. Look, the closest people in his life are, first of all, himself, then his lovely wife, his parents, his uncle, I think, and then we come, and, and now, of course, his, um, his current team. And I think it wasn't just one transformation from three to one. I think he constantly transformed himself. That was just the last transformation and maybe the, the most visible one because when you look at tennis, most, like almost everyone in the top 100, they really practice hard. You know, you see them on the practice court, they put a great effort. Most of them, when they play matches, they really fight hard. But very few guys realize that what you do off the court is almost as important as what you do on the court, meaning like what you eat, how you sleep, how you recover, even who you hang out with, what you feed your mind with. And that is the area where I think the top guys really escalate their professionalism. And I think Novak was bred with an environment of people who really always fully believed in his limitless um, abilities. And of course, you know, it's a dangerous thing to say because a lot of kids have parents who think they will become a number one in the world or win grand slams. And as we know, most of the time that doesn't happen and it can't happen because Unfortunately, there can only be one number one player at a time. But in that case, it all worked out and uh, all the predictions of the family um, came true and their predictions were that he would be as good as he is now. And I heard those chords from the moment I managed him from when he was 14 years old. And uh, in this scenario, I have to give them credit. You know, they, they saw potential like that actually was really there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you're right. You know, there are a lot of parents that say these things about their children and truly believe them, you know, believe that their child is going to get there. What I find interesting in the case of Novak Djokovic and where I think, you know, the typical tennis parent can really learn some very valuable stuff is the fact that Novak has younger brothers who play tennis as well and how the family balances all of the children and their abilities and their potential. Absolutely. You know, like um, regardless of how good someone is on the tennis court, we're not all born to be world number one tennis players because and we don't even all want to be world number one tennis players because it really requires significant sacrifices. It uh, requires extremely hard work and focus on one single thing, meaning becoming the best tennis player you can. And you really need to feel passionate 
and fulfilled not only about like doing well, but about the struggle, about pushing your limits, about digging as deep as you can inside of your soul and your body. And it takes a very remarkable personality to do that. And I actually think it takes a remarkable personality to do anything because everybody is remarkable. But to really become a world-class athlete is, um, is, is a skill. You know, it's something that, that um, you need to embrace because competition is hard. You know, in tennis, you lose almost every single week, right? Like you have one winner per tournament. Mm-hmm. So you really need to be able to deal with emotions of disappointment and of success and of um, really building the kind of resilience that when you fall down, you have this appetite of learning from your loss rather than feeling frustrated and desperate. And in Novak's family, you know, I think definitely what may have shaped Novak as well as growing up in a very difficult time, you know, there was a war in ex-Yugoslavia at the time when Novak was training as a young player. And I think one of the things that I see in his eyes is the desire to show the world that Serbia is actually an amazing country, to be kind of an ambassador for his country and to have like a much bigger purpose than just winning trophies and making money and even making his family proud. Like he really wants to make a whole nation proud and he wants to represent his country wherever he goes. Well, and it's funny because, you know, there's a lot of talk and has been for several years now about what's wrong with American tennis. Why are we not producing top male players anymore? I mean, of course, we've got Serena and Venus still at the top of the game, and we've got some amazing younger players coming up on the women's side and the men's side as well. But the reality is, you know, there's no one right now in the States that is positioned to take over the number one spot on the ATP side. And, you know, coaches and others, pundits talk about the fact that our kids just aren't hungry enough. They have everything handed to them, et cetera, et cetera. And when we hear Novak's story and we've been hearing it. If we follow professional tennis, we've been hearing that story for a while now. You know, it is a unique situation, but then you can also look at Roger Federer's upbringing or Rafael Nadal's upbringing and say, but those guys didn't come up in wartime. They didn't come up financially struggling. You know, their families were comfortable and could, could manage fine. So how did they get there? You know, and why can't we seem to produce in the U.S.? What's going on? What are your thoughts on that? Everyone has a unique story. Um, I think with Rafa, definitely, he was raised with people who had amazing values both on and off the court. And I think um, he built this character strength that is so great to be a world-class athlete, but it's also so great to being an amazing human being. He really combines this warrior on the court and this unbelievably nice and humble guy off the court. Really a remarkable person. And then Roger, you know, like um, he definitely looked like a very smooth and talented kid from a very young age. And I'm not 
a guy who really talks much or really believes that much in super talents. You know, if, um, if you study the literature, often the guys who are really talented, even in other fields like Mozart or the Williams sisters, they were exposed to their craft from a very young age. And, and, and that really gave them a, an amazing um, head start towards many of their competitors. But um, still, I remember Roger as a young player. His game already looked so loose, so effortless. Um, so maybe he really got amazing training and amazing um, um, guidance at the very young stage of his career. But one thing is for sure, at one stage, all of these guys had to come to a moment where they decided that they would give everything in their life to become a world-class player. And I think when you come from a situation with absolutely no money, that's extremely hard because tennis is an expensive sport. And when you come from a very wealthy background, it's also very hard because then you definitely become too spoiled. Roger and Rafa came from better off circumstances than Novak. Novak didn't come from uh, necessarily like poor background. His parents had a restaurant. They were uh, relatively successful for Serbian standards. Of course, you know, the war and all those things made things tougher. And the war definitely also shaped Novak's toughness. I think many people, when they experience difficult situations, they actually crack. But as Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And with regards to American tennis, it's, it's really hard for me to say. I managed one of the most talented kids I know, which was Donald Young. And um, if I had to explain why didn't he really make it bigger and better than he did, it, uh, it's not easy for me to explain, other than that he, didn't, he wasn't able to develop the mental toughness of the very best guys. Like tennis-wise, he, he really had everything you need to make it uh, to the top. Progress-wise, I would say he didn't progress at the pace of like a Novak. You know, like you, you can really see these guys, Novak, Rafa, Roger. Even now you see them like fine-tune their games. And um, so I think it's a combination of having the right environment, having the right psychological environment, and really developing this internal drive. And... Uh, it, it's not always easy to explain what this, where this internal drive comes from. I do think you can often recognize it. You can see which kids are grittier, which kids have this intrinsic motivation um, and how you teach this kind of motivation. <clears throat> it's very difficult, but I know that like some of the most gifted Tennis psycholo psychologists come from America, you know, someone like Jim Lur. I, I, I really love what he teaches and what he talks about. And uh, I hope that these voices will become stronger, you know, with, with, within the USTA. And, uh, you know, it, it must be very frustrating because I know how much money and effort is being put into tennis. But at the same time, we also have to remember that American tennis isn't like catastrophically bad. As you said, on the women's side, they're extremely strong right now. And on the men's side, they have some good players. And what is true, they often have very good juniors who people think will become really good. I'm thinking now of Taylor Fritz, for example. Mm -hmm. And then somehow 
their career does start to flatten down. And it does give me the impression that maybe, you know, they, they get too much too early. They become celebrated like stars too early. They get whatever they need um, too quickly. And maybe things become too comfortable. So that definitely could be one of the reasons. It's interesting. I was talking to a junior coach here that I have the highest respect for, and he was telling me that when he's coaching a top junior, he tells the family from the get-go, I don't care how good your child gets during their junior career, we will not take on sponsorships because that it leads to exactly what you were talking about, Alon, of that sense of it's easy, it's comfortable, look at me, I'm a star, I'm being sponsored by this brand and that brand. And he just flat out doesn't allow his players to be sponsored um, at, during their junior years. And I, I was so shocked to hear that, you know, because a lot of coaches use that as a marketing tool, you know, I have so many players sponsored by this brand or that brand, and this coach just completely takes the opposite tack. And I, I just, it was fascinating to me. It's fascinating. I think it's an extreme approach, but what I do think would be interesting is to create a system where a player, like, and he needs to consent to it, of course, but where a player um, has a cap of how much money he can access, you know, to really provide him with everything he needs for his career and then also to live. And that all the remaining money goes into some kind of uh, investment vehicle that the player can then touch after the age of 35. I think that could be a very interesting mechanism. Mm, that is interesting. Very interesting. Well, let's get back to this whole idea of intrinsic motivation, because I, this is something that I find many parents ask about, you know, my kid's really talented, but just, you know, doesn't seem to have that drive or, you know, I'm the one saying you need to go out and hit today or you need to arrange a practice match or whatever. It's not coming from the child. Is that something that can be taught or is that something that has to come from inside the player? I think it's something that evolves. I think, you know, in the beginning when a kid plays tennis, he plays for the fun. Then, you know, it's the parents and the family who say, you know, I think it's good for you to stick to one thing. And that means sometimes even playing when you don't feel it, feel like it. It's like, you know, like if a kid goes to learn piano, like, and he decides that's something he likes, then a little bit of persistence is healthy to build his character. But um, then comes a time where a kid needs to shift from like playing tennis because other people are like pushing him to it and because he actually enjoys it to really seeing tennis as a as something that he or she feels really passionate about and really seeing tennis as an opportunity to develop as a person to develop character traits to grow to be stronger to really like push one's own limits. So I think it's something that evolves over time. And I think one of the key things to really enhance intrinsic motivation is education. And I love to give the example that uh, Carol Dreck talks about um, 
She is the woman who wrote a book called Mindset and came up with concepts like growth mindset and fixed mindset. And she made a very interesting study that was a four-part study. And it was with um, kids, I think they were in their early teens, and they were divided into two groups. One group was primed with a growth mindset and one with a fixed mindset. And the way they were um, primed was they were given a very easy riddle. And the kids in the growth mindset group, they were praised by the teacher saying, wow, you're working so hard. You can see that when you work hard, you can really like solve these riddles well. And the other group, the fixed mindset group, they were praised with like talent. They were told like, wow, you're so gifted. You're so talented. In the second step, all the kids were given a choice to either do a very difficult riddle or a very easy riddle. Now, the kids in the growth mindset, and again, growth mindset is like the mindset that you become good through hard work and effort. So the kids in the growth mindset, they um, actually preferred doing the difficult riddle, most of them, because they just liked the challenge. The kids in the fixed mindset, which is the group that like gets told that you know, you're as good as you're, you're born with fixed traits and talent, those kids, they preferred to take the easy test because they were scared to fail. You know, they didn't want like to jeopardize their reputation. In the third part, all the kids were given a very difficult riddle, one that they could probably not solve. And again, the growth mindset kids persisted longer. They enjoyed the challenge. The kids from the fixed mindset, they gave up earlier. They got frustrated quicker. But the most interesting thing is that in the fourth part of this riddle, all the kids were given an easy riddle again. And the kids from the growth mindset, they managed to solve that riddle quicker and better than initially. But the kids from the fixed mindset now struggled a bit more than at the beginning because they were like a little bit self-conscious. They were really scared to, to mess things up. So the difference between the growth mindset kids and the fixed mindset kids actually became quite substantial. And this all happened just from the way the kids were being praised. And I think the way we praise our kids will impact whether they develop intrinsic motivation, really like developing this desire to work hard just for the sake of pushing ourselves, or extrinsic motivation where everything is about you know getting rewards and getting a prize and being the best and uh, and I, and I really love love um, this concept of growth mindset. Me too. And part of what I love about it is the notion that it's never too late to kind of shift the way that you approach problem solving. Right? It's because I think what happens with parents and especially parents of children that are pursuing something at an elite level, whether it's sports or music or the arts or education, whatever it is, is we think, oh my gosh, I, you know, my kid's already 12 years old. I haven't been doing this right. I've messed them up. They're never going to reach the highest level. And that's really not the case, correct? It is correct. You know, like, uh, of course, you know, um, tennis is very competitive, 
but there are examples of guys who started playing tennis very late and made it very well. There are players who peaked at a very late age. There's all sorts of different scenarios. And I think in the end of the day, while it's great to have goals and great to want to be a top 100 player or a top 10 player, and I think one even needs to have these goals to visualize them, to be clear what we want to have. At the same time, we need to be detached from specific outcomes. We need to really accept that tennis is a game where you face another player and there is the chance that that player will play better than you. And that the biggest benefit from tennis is that it can really help us shape our character, both in terms of how we present ourselves on the tennis court, how focused we are, how disciplined and resilient we are, but also how we develop as a human being, you know, what values we have, have how honest we are, how fair we are, how um, polite and respectful we are. And I think that's the real beauty of the game of tennis. One of the things that you like to talk about a lot is the paradox of pressure. And I would love to kind of shift the conversation a little bit and get to that topic. Can you explain, A, what you mean by that? And then how do we help our children learn how to avoid cracking under pressure? Sure. And I think this is the crutch of mental toughness in tennis. And I think this concept sounds easy, and I'll explain it in a second, but I think till one really embraces it and understands it, takes a bit of time, but when one does, I think everything changes and everything shifts. And um, the paradox of winning really means that on the one hand, you need to prepare extremely well for a tournament, for a match. You really need to desire to win over everything. You need to be willing to really like go onto the court like a warrior and like if the other guy wants to win, he needs to beat you like five, 10, 15 times because you'll always come back. You'll, you'll really give 200%. At the same time, once you step on the court, you need to detach from caring about winning. You need to understand that you want to enjoy yourself on the court, you want to enjoy the struggle, you want to enjoy pushing your limits. And you can only do that if ultimately you don't care about winning or losing. That even if you're down a match point, you don't worry about winning, you're able to play your best tennis in that moment. And one of the reasons we don't perform well in tennis is because we care so much, we're scared to mess things up. And we have all these shots that we train year in and year out that actually happen almost automatically. For example, let's say you serve well, and, and I'm assuming that because, of course, you know, let's say you have a weak backhand, you know what you need to work on. That's going to hold you back. You know, that you, you just need to find a good coach, work on it. But once you reach this level where your shots happen naturally, then overthinking is what can really destroy your game. You know, when you're serving and you tell yourself, don't do a double fault, suddenly your hands start trembling, suddenly you start <laughs> thinking about all the things you need to do to hit a good serve. And that like, you're like it basically slows down your 
subconscious flow of the game. It's what um, I think um, it's Daniel Kahneman calls it system one and system two. I think, uh, um, what's his name? Timoth Timothy Galloway in um, the inner game of uh, tennis. Inner, yeah. Exactly. We have the conscious and unconscious parts. And when we start to consciously program what we, or think about what we do unconsciously, that's when we become very tight and very nervous. And it's a skill that we need to learn. And I could talk about this for hours, but I honestly believe if anyone is serious about becoming mentally tougher, then the starting point is a very simple starting point. And I'll share this, and it's really a, a magic wonder solution to performing well. Everyone probably knows about it. Many people tried it, but for some reason, people struggle to persist with it, especially when they see the initial results. And um, I'm talking about meditation. I really believe that if you meditate 10, 15, 20, even 30 minutes a day, you learn how to quieten your mind. You learn how to observe your thoughts without getting attached to them. You learn to find this inner stillness and inner calmness that can really guide you in those moments where other people feel pressure and crack. Well, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in meditation as well. However, when you're talking to a 12, 14, 16-year-old kid, trying to, quote, sell them on the idea of the benefits of meditation is oftentimes near impossible. So how do you approach that with a junior player who maybe has realized, you know, I, I'm plateauing, I'm not continuing to get better, or I'm in a losing streak I can't get out of, how do you go about convincing them to give this a shot? That's a good question. And um, first of all, I think every player experiences this moment where pressure catches up and where they plateau or even go a little bit backwards. I've seen it with every top player. The key is to get out of that situation relatively quickly. And I think it's in those situations that you approach a player and say, look, this is what's happening. You know, it's a very natural thing. You're feeling pressure and it's a good thing in a way. But it shows that you really care about the game. And if you didn't care about the game, you wouldn't be able to practice that hard. However, there's something really important you need to understand. And that is that you can be the best tennis player in the world. But if you don't improve how you compete on the court, then you will consistently be underperforming. And that can be very frustrating. And there is one simple tool that will automatically help you both on the tennis court and off the court. And it also will make you a happier, healthier, smarter, more focused human being. And um, I, I'll, I'll show you this app. It's like a 10, 15 minute meditation a day. It's quite fun. And I promise you, if you do this for 30 days in a row, it will change your life. Now, you need to know that. The first two, three days might be easy. Then you might like struggle finding the right time and you'll find excuses. And, and this is all normal because when we experience change, when we do things that are a bit out of our comfort zone, then we, we experience resistance. And it's a good thing because you need to know that it is the kids 
who can overcome this resistance, who will become the outliers in whatever they do. And if everyone could do this, then everyone would be number one in the world. This is what will make you a special competitor. And so how do they get started with this? What are the introductory steps to it? So as I said, like a, a nice conversation, then like recommending a good app, and I like the app Headspace, and then really in a loving, non-judgmental way, like following up with your kid, you know, seeing whether they were able to do the meditation, helping them understand what would be the right time in the day to do it so they can really build a habit and just supporting and guiding them without judging them and knowing that as in tennis where you can have setbacks, you can also have setbacks when you create new habits, but also teaching your kid that life is about habits. Like everything we do, or I would say 90% of what we do are habits. Most of these habits happen without any intention. They just happen automatically. And what separates top performers from everyone else is to consciously create habits that serve our goals. And that's what lets us become the designers of our lives. And of course, you know, this is quite a mature conversation, but I think most teenagers, young teenagers will understand it. But we have to also have the, the human touch to understand when someone is ready for this kind of conversation. And, you know, like maybe if, if they struggle, you know, maybe we need to find a five-minute meditation solution. But I have kids who are four and one, and I honestly would be disappointed if I wouldn't manage to introduce them some form of mindfulness, you know, before they turn 10, because I think it will be such an amazing tool for them for whatever they do. You know, it was, and this is becoming more philosophical, but it's, it was Viktor Frankl and, and Man's Search for Meaning who said that freedom means increasing the gap between stimulus and response, meaning that, you know, we have all these stimulations in life and we often react impulsively, but if we can slow down and create a gap between when something happens to our life and the moment where we respond, that's when we start becoming the designers of our lives and that's what real freedom is all about. Well, my dog has decided to start um, going nuts. Somebody is knocking at the door. <laughs> I'm so I sorry. <laughs> Hang on one second. I'm going to just pause. So, listeners, I apologize for that. Uh, that was an Amazon delivery that set Sully off, but we are going to continue on with this conversation. So, Alon, we were talking about mindfulness and and you know, the, the whole notion of pausing between stimuli and responses and how that's a difficult lesson to learn, I think. But, um, and then this whole notion of teaching our children how to meditate. And, you know, one of my questions to you is, do you feel like Meditation is an idea or a suggestion that should come from the parents, or is it something that should come from the tennis coach or someone else, maybe? What are your thoughts on that? I don't have any specific thoughts on that, but I think it's definitely something that parents can introduce to their kids because it's um, a form of education that goes way beyond tennis. It's a life skill that will help them 
whatever they do. And I think parents are exposed to the pressure of their kids. And I think if the parents, if the kids see that the parents care about how the kids feel and they support them with tools to deal with pressure, then that's very powerful. At the same time, I also think parents really need to um, be very consistent in their message to their kids. And I think the right message is that we support you no matter what, as long as you really try your best with whatever you try and do. And that parents also develop this detachment of outcomes. Because I think when a kid plays and he sees his parents like extremely nervous on the stands, I think that can be one of the big sources that really um, make kids um, struggle and suffer on the tennis court. Uh, agreed. And I, I think that's one of the hardest positions to be in as a parent is regardless of, of what your child is pursuing is to be in the audience and, and be helpless when they're on their stage, whether that's a court, a field, a physical stage, whatever it is. It, it's just gut-wrenching, I think. And learning how to manage that stress from the parent side Man, oh man, that is a tough one. It is, but, uh, you know, if we love our kids, then I'm not saying parents who get nervous don't love their kids, but if we love our kids and we know that this can really affect how they feel because we heard people like you and me talk about it, then it's a challenge to really, you know, say, okay, you know, what is the best behavior I can create for myself as a parent to really support my kid and to give my kid the psychological safety to know that kid will always be accepted and loved and not judged um, for a result on the tennis court. I think when kids really understand this fully, life becomes much easier. Agreed. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So in addition to incorporating meditation into daily life, and it really is something that needs to be done on a daily basis in order to fully develop the habit and really reap the benefits of it. Are there other specific mental drills that you can use to to help our kids get mentally tougher out there and compete harder and better? Um, let me think. I mean, there's quite a few, but I think um, one thing that I was thinking about um, this week and I actually wrote a blog post about is um, creating routines. And one of the most important routines is the pre-match routine. You know, like we we prepare our body for a match. We usually like, hit for 30 minutes, we do some stretching, we do some exercises. In the same manner, we want to prepare ourselves mentally. We want to make sure we eliminate distractions. You know, we don't browse on our phone before we start a match. We want to do things that calm us down if we feel nervous and if nervousness really like prevents us from performing our best. And this can be a simple thing like sitting down and really focusing on doing a few breathing exercises. I think another very powerful thing is, of course, sitting with your coach and developing a game plan for your match, both in terms of, you know, what, what the best way is to play based on who your opponent is, but also um, 
thinking about the things that you're working on right now and really incorporating those into your match, you know, having one, two, three things that you want to do in a match that you know that this is the plan, this is how I'm going to return, this is what I'm going to do in a situation that I usually don't do well. And then finally, I think visualizations are extremely powerful. And I think more and more tennis players realize that, that in life, like let's say you want to build a house, you don't just randomly build a house, you first create a plan. In the same way, you want to build a plan in your head of your match. You want to go through the key moments of the match in your head. And of course, you don't know exactly what those key moments will be. But you want to picture yourself, enter the court, maybe feeling a little bit nervous in the beginning, taking a few deep breaths, calming yourself down, really getting yourself in a very focused state, playing a few long rallies, really like, like grinding through the rallies, like uh, pushing your limits, playing well, feeling the satisfaction of winning important points. And you want to do these visualizations both with sense data, meaning you want to feel like you're playing, you want to like see the ball, you want to hear the ball, you want to even like, you know, experience the touches and the tastes and everything you would experience while playing the match, but you also want to experience the emotions. You know, you're down a break point in your visualization. Again, you're feeling tense, but you see yourself, calm yourself down. You see yourself thinking the thoughts you want to think in that moment and then handling that situation well. And then ultimately you see yourself winning the match, experiencing this deep sense of internal satisfaction. I think you do that before a match and then you, you feel more prepared. You feel like you can anticipate the situations you will encounter. And you also increase your motivation because you, you start believing that you can really play great tennis in this competitive situation. And I think most importantly, you also um, learn to enjoy the match more because you feel more prepared. And calmer walking out onto the court, right? I mean, I think when we go through these types of exercises, it creates this kind of shield of calmness around us. And hopefully that means we're going to react with uh, that same calmness, not overreact when the situation becomes tough out there. And I, I mean, what a gift for a kid to, to give him or herself before walking out on the court and doing battle. True. And as you know me by now, true greatness comes from paradoxes. So you do want to find that focused and calm state. But some players also need this energy, you know, like maybe taking a cold shower, waking up the body, listening to some pumping music just before you walk onto the court, jumping up and down, experiencing this explosiveness in your body. So it's a mix and everyone needs to find the right balance. But definitely you do want to get rid of anxiety and fearfulness. And for this, you need this inner stillness and calmness, even if you feel um, explosive and energized. Sure, sure. And all of this requires discipline. I mean, that's, I think, of everything we've spoken about today, Alon, discipline is the underlying theme because without regular practice, without regular meditation, without regular routine, 
none of it's going to work. <laughs> you've, you've got to, to be disciplined about it and make this a priority if reaching the highest levels is the goal. Right. And discipline comes from another paradox, and that paradox is wanting to be a great player, win a lot of matches, um, be a success story, at the same time being willing to delay that gratification and really doing the little habits that can make such a big difference. So to me, discipline is really about delayed gratification. And that can be such a challenge, not only when you're not a good tennis player, but also once you become a good tennis player to keep going and to making the next step and take again Djokovic when he was three in the world, you know, he could have enjoyed being three in the world. He could have even, you know, maybe like gone out, celebrated, hang out with celebrities, still be three, four in the world, win a slam maybe uh, once more in his career, maybe win two more slams, you know, have an amazing career. But he just didn't want that. He was willing to delay the gratification of being a top tennis player and really putting in additional effort and hard work. Well, I love this. This is all just so useful and these great lessons that we can take from these top players that we are so incredibly lucky to have in our game and to have had in our game for the past decade or more. I mean, and and there's no sign of any of these players giving up this sport, you know, retiring. None of them are talking about retirement yet. And we are just so, so lucky. So, Alon, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experiences with our audience. And I just, I've enjoyed very much getting to talk to you and getting to know you and hope that you'll come on the podcast again. I'd love to, Lisa. This was great. I loved your questions. It really shows how much you know and care about the game. And I love what you do. Well, thank you. Back at you. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.